Good evening and welcome to the first class of the JLI course entitled Booksmart. So I know there was conversation, was discussion, what's the meaning of the, of the title, Booksmart? Are you going to become smart? So the way I would put it is you'll become smart about books. How's that? You know, sometimes you think that the way you, uh, the way you absorb information from books is if you fall asleep on the book, right? Osmosis, you allow the information to get in. That's not the way it is. No matter how much you know about a book, you still have to open up the book and absorb the information yourself. You have to learn it. But the purpose of this course is so that we should understand what are the books. What are all of these books that we have that are called the Torah? Hello. Hi, here. You want to pass this to me? Thank you. Um, so I'd like to start off uh, with a joke, right? That's the best way to start off a lesson. Uh, there was once a fellow walked into the public library. Could be you heard this joke before. He walked into the public library and he says, I'd like to order a pizza and a fries to go, please. So the librarian looks at him and says, excuse me, sir. This is not a restaurant, it's a library. So he says, oh, I'd like to order pizza and fries to go. <laughs> All right, so we're not in the library. And in fact, probably this type of class would be best held in a library surrounded by thousands and thousands of books because that's actually the setting of what this course is all about. But we wanted to have dinner tonight, so we're doing it outside of the library. But the whole purpose of the course is for us to understand what is in the Jewish bookcase. What are all these books all about? You go up to a Jew and ask a Jew, what is the most important book in Judaism? And what will they answer? Torah, very good. Um, I'll send out an email. I'll say, join us for a Torah class. What do you expect to hear in a Torah class? To okay, Torah. And then you're going to see that I'm going to pull out a page from Maimonides, and we're going to study Maimonides. And you'll say, hey, Rabbi, that's not Torah. That's Maimonides. Or is it Torah? I'm sure you've heard, especially if you've been coming to a class, you've heard different terms that are used for different genres of Jewish thought, of Jewish teachings. Torah, everyone's heard that. Have you ever heard the term Midrash? Midrash. Talmud, you've heard that? Yes. Kabbalah. All right, everyone's familiar here. Halacha. Halacha is the Hebrew word for Jewish law. Musar. Musar is more like ethics. Chasidut. Have you heard of Chasidut? You've heard a lot about it, huh? Okay. Hasidic philosophy. Now, all of these terms, starting from Torah, Medrash, all of these terms are actually all included in the umbrella term called Torah. So if I say, what is the most important book in Judaism? You'll say Torah. You're right. What are you referring to when you say Torah? The so you say the Tanakh. All right, we'll talk about that soon. What would others refer to the Torah? Five the five books of Moses. And if I write in an email, we're going to have a Torah class. What am I referring to? Anything. Helen's got it right. I could be referring to anything. Could I be referring? 
Could I, oh, could I be referring to a Jackie Mason uh, joke book? Now you're uncomfortable saying that's Torah, huh? You have good reason to be uncomfortable with that because I don't know if that goes under the umbrella of Torah as we will uh, come to understand very well. Um, what? Uh, I don't even know if it's under the category of Midrash. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But let's go a little bit on the course map. So we are going to have six lessons. The first lesson, which is today's lesson, we're going to be discussing Torah. What is Torah? And specifically, what is the Bible? We'll talk about that soon. Lesson two, we'll talk about Midrash. I know there's a lot of misinformation out there about Midrash, and we'll get some clarity about that in lesson two. Lesson three, we're going to talk about Talmud and its commentaries. Lesson four, we're going to talk about Halacha, the Halachic books, the Halachic works. Lesson five, we're going to talk about Musar, which is ethics, and Chakira. Chakira means uh, philosophical works. I'm reading off of figure 1.1, which is on page three of the student book. And lesson six, finally, is going to be the esoteric area of Judaism, which is Kabbalah and Hasidut. Beyond that, there's also an entire genre called biblical commentary, um, which we're not really going to delve into. We're going to touch on it today. But um, so this is essentially what we are dealing with throughout this course. Now, let's go to figure 1.2. We have two photos here. Photo A has a scroll, and we would refer to that as the Torah. Most commonly, we use that reference to the word Torah when we talk about the reading of the Torah in synagogue, right? During services, either on Shabbos, on the holidays, sometimes even on a weekday, on a Monday and Thursday morning, or Rosh Chodesh, we take out the Torah scroll, and it's the reading of the Torah. Now, figure B, or picture B, we have a library with tons and tons of books. That's also called the Torah. How did these two words get these vastly different meanings? I'm told that Dr. Seuss wrote a book about a lady that had 23 kids, and all of them were named Dave. It got confusing, but she liked the name Dave. You know, if we're trying to figure out what to, what to call and what to reference, why are we calling the scroll Torah? Why are we calling these books Torah? What's, what's going on over here? Um, the Torah scroll has about 80,000 words. That's the size of a small novel. The Jewish library has well over 120,000 books. There is an online library called Oitzer HaChachma. Um, and they've gathered together, they, 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 they scanned over 120,000 books. So if you're looking to have access to all of Jewish wisdom, you've got to get yourself um, an Oitzer HaChachma. It can come on a hard drive, and you can have it by your computer, or you can get an online subscription, and you can access literally 120,000 books. They have a very powerful search engine. You're able to find things. There's a joke that goes like this. The Talmud states that a scholar is called Shabbat. I'm not going to get into the explanation of, of this meaning, but a scholar, someone who knows Torah well, is called Shabbat. In the 20th century, 
The only one that you know for sure as a scholar is if he's able to find you stuff in Torah on Shabbat. Because on the weekdays, you just go to Google, you go to Eitzhar HaChachma, you type it in, bam, you find it. You're all good. The point I'm trying to make is that the Jewish library is 120,000 published books, if not more. There's probably much, much more. They're constantly adding more and more books. And I would venture to say that probably double that amount has been um, written over the generations and lost. A lot of Torah has been written by scholars throughout the generations and those manuscripts were lost either in fires or they were stolen by the enemy or just many, many different reasons. In fact, um, in the past 50, 60 years, they've been discovering many manuscripts in old libraries, uh, in, in what's called a geniza, places, you know, there's old synagogues that had a lot of old books that were brought together. They're discovering these manuscripts and today they're publishing works that have been authored 800 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 300 years ago, you name it, it's constantly coming out. But why is all of this called Torah? And before we, and now I think it's important that we can get into the specifics. When a Jew says, I'm going to read Torah, he can mean one of three things. He can mean an actual scroll. He could mean this book here, which is called Tanakh, We'll talk soon about what is Tanakh. Or he could mean any Torah book. He could be pulling out a book of Talmud, putting out, pulling out a code of Jewish law, whatever it might be. Uh, he's going to pull it out and read it, and he is actually learning Torah. How do I know that all of this is called Torah? Because, as I'm sure you're all aware, there are many blessings in Judaism. There's blessings for food, there's blessings for mitzvot. Before we eat food, we have to make a blessing. Before we do a mitzvah, we make a blessing. And there is even a blessing to be made before learning Torah. The most famous of those, but it's actually three blessings. The most famous one is the blessing that is said when someone receives an aliyah by the Torah. And it ends off, There's two other blessings that are part of a group of blessings that we make on the Torah. And in fact, according to Jewish law, one is not allowed to learn Torah without reciting these blessings. You have to recite the blessing and then you can learn Torah. And that's why these blessings are in our morning prayers. Right when we wake up, we open up the Siddur, the prayer book, and there is the, the morning prayers thanking God for bringing us back to life and thanking God for everything that we have. And we end off with the blessings on the Torah and we learn a little bit of Torah. Now what is considered Torah that necessitates a blessing? And the answer is it doesn't have to be a scroll it doesn't have to be something from the Tanakh. Anything that is under the umbrella name of Torah. I might be learning a commentary that was written literally 50 years ago. Or it was literally, it was written yesterday. And it would all be under the category of Torah. And I have the obligation to make a blessing on the Torah. But now let's get into specifics. What is called Torah and how do we differentiate between all these different categories. So, uh, many of you have a timeline map that comes in the, in the student uh, guide. Um, I didn't send the PDF, I, I apologize for that, but I'm sure we'll have what we need in order to figure it all out. Alrighty, so in the timeline map, you'll see at the very beginning, um, on the, the one that has multiple colors, on the left side in black, 
This is a timeline of primary Torah works. Okay. The first thing that we need to understand is that when we say Torah, we could be referring to any one of three things. Either the Torah scroll, which was written by Moses and is comprised of the five books of Moses. The other thing that we could be referring to is this book called Tanakh, which includes in it the five books of Moses. And in addition to that, 19 books which are called prophets and 11 books which are called writings. So in Hebrew, the three words to describe these three categories, the first of the five books of Moses is called Torah. So that starts with a tough, a T. Then prophets in Hebrew is Nevi'im, starts with an N, a Nun. And then the final one, works, uh, writings, is called Ktuvim. Tuvim is a kaf, which could be changed into a chaf. So you have T-N-C-H, or tough nun chaf. That is um, an acronym which spells out the word Tanakh. The word Tanakh doesn't mean anything in Hebrew. Tanakh is an acronym of these three things. Torah, which is the five books of Moses. Nevi'im, the prophets. And Ktuvim, which is the writings, so that it is Tanakh. Why do I say that all three together could be called Torah? If only the first section, which is the five books of Moses, is really called Torah. So here's the deal. This compilation of all of these books is called Torah Shebikhtav, the written Torah. The written Torah. Everything else all of the other books, Mishnah, Talmud, Halacha, all of that is under the category of Torah Sheba'al Peh, the oral Torah. Now we're going to discuss written Torah and oral Torah, but now just for definition purposes. The first five books of Moses are what are typically called Torah, and that's why the scroll that's in the synagogue, which is comprised of the five books of Moses, is called the Book of Torah. And even when we put it together with the other two categories of Nevi'im, prophets, and Tuvim, we're calling the first five books also Torah. However, the five books of Moses are not the only books that are called Torah Shebikhtav, written Torah. The written Torah extends to include all of Tanakh. How long, over, over how long of a period was Tanakh written? The answer is about a thousand years. It started to be written after the revelation at Sinai. So when the Jewish people left Egypt in the year 2448 from creation, um, which is about 1300 BCE. Um, so Moses started to write the Torah. It took him about 40 years to write the Torah. I guess he wasn't writing every day, right? Because nowadays to write a Torah takes under a year to write a Torah. So what was he doing for 40 years? We'll talk about that in a moment. But it took him about 40 years to compile and to write the five books of Moses. On the day that he passed away, he gave the Torah scroll to the Jewish people. In fact, he gifted every tribe a Torah scroll. That's when it was completed. And in fact, the story of the Torah ends with the death of Moses. After that, Joshua was the leader that brought the Jewish people into the land of Israel. And so then there's the books of the, of the prophets. It starts off with Joshua, continues on with 
Judges and then Samuel, etc., etc. There's a whole long list. And this whole idea that the story that is told in the prophets goes all the way until in middle of or right before the very beginning of the Second Temple era. So you're talking about an era of about a thousand years. Uh, the writings, Ketuvim, that includes, for example, Tehillim, which is Psalms, which were written by King David. That includes the book of Esther, which is the story of Purim. Uh, it includes the book of Job, which according to many, Moses wrote. Um, so they were written in many, many different uh, time, time periods within this thousand year time period, but it was all within this time period of a thousand years. That is what's called the written Torah. Now, what is the specific definition or what makes the written Torah different from the oral Torah? Let's look at text number one on page four. This is a quote from the Talmud. The Talmud says, what was that? Yeah. The Talmud says, the words that were given in writing, you are not allowed to communicate them orally. And the words that were taught orally, you are not allowed to communicate them in writing. All right. So, what does that mean? If it's in writing, I can't say it by heart. And if it was said to me by a teacher, I'm not allowed to write it down. Like, what, what's happening here? So here's the deal. Um, you know, and actually, before we get to the specifics of what differentiates the written Torah from the oral Torah, let's first delve into what is in the written Torah. And then we're going to kind of juxtapose it or see the difference between the written Torah and the oral Torah and how they work together. So let's go to page 7. Figure 1.3. Figure 1.3. So it has the three categories of what is in the written Torah. We have the five books of Moses on the top. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The middle we have the prophets. So the prophets are Joshua, Judges, Samuel. You may have seen Samuel 1, Samuel 2. They're not two different Samuels. It's just that... Many, many years later, in fact, I believe it was, it, was, it was Christian monks that were trying to categorize different things in the Bible, so they kind of split up Samuel 1, Samuel 2, but it's stuck. So we also have Samuel 1 and Samuel 2, but really, it's one long Samuel. Kings, we also have Kings 1 and Kings 2, but it's really one long Kings. Jeremiah, Ezekiel. All of the, the next 12 books are a bunch of small books that were bunched together in a general book called Trey Asar, which is Aramaic for 12. But there are 12 books, which were also written by various different prophets, and they, um, they, they have the prophecies of the prophets here, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micha, Nachum, Chavakuk, Tzfania, Chagai, Zechariah, Malachi. Sorry? I missed Isaiah, I didn't mention Isaiah. Okay, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, thank you. And then we have the writings. The writings are Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, you notice they're bunched together. They're actually two different books, but they're bunched together for a reason that's beyond uh, the, the focus of today's class. And then we have Chronicles. 
The reason why it's important to see that these 12 are actually bunched into one book is because typically you'll hear the expression, the 24 books of the Tanakh. 24 books. But if you can count all of them, you'll find much more than 24. So actually these 12 are counted as one. So you have five books of Moses, you have eight books of prophets. So five plus eight gets us to 13. And then you have 11 books of the writings, which gets us to 24. So if someone asks you, how many books are in Tanakh? The proper answer would be 24. The technical answer will get you to much more. 25 plus 11, which gets us to about 36. So really, if you get into the nitty-gritties, you're going to have 36 books. But in the traditional way of referring to them, these 12 books in the Prophets are called Treyasar, the 12. And that's that. Uh, and Ezra and Nehemiah and the writings are typically put together as one book. But technically speaking, we have 36 different books. Are they all the same size? Not at all, right? Not even close. You could have Isaiah, which is like over 50 chapters. You could have uh, Ruth, which is how many? Four chapters. How many is uh, Jonah? Jonah is uh, four or five. Just one. Jonah's one. Obadiah is only one. For whatever reason, sometimes a book would have one chapter and it's considered a book for itself. Sometimes it could have numerous chapters. You know, it's all out there. And the focus of the class today is not to understand why everything was split up the way it was, but it's to try to understand and get a better understanding of what is this all about. Now, I have a, I have a general question for you. Let's say I show up to a library with this book, the Tanakh. Under which section should the librarian put it? Jewish literature, you say. Okay. I have news for you. There's no section called Jewish literature. All right. What's another option that you want to tell us? Religion. Very good. Fair. But let's say for the purpose of our conversation, there's no religion section. What other section could... History. History is one option. What else? What? Philosophy. Okay. Identity. All right. Any other options? What was that? Self-help. Self-help. <laughs> I like that. Self-help. This is a real self-help book. You would say just Judaism, but I'm saying just for hypothetical conversation's sake, there's no religion, no Judaism section. So we're getting, trying to get options, trying to understand what genre is this, yes? Poetry. Poetry, yes. There's a tremendous amount of poetry here. What else? How about law? Law, oh, that's an obvious one, huh? Law. Right, what happened to that? Right? There's no law in here? All right, fine, we'll hold that thought. What was that? Literature. Literature, yes. It's definitely one of the most, one of the most beautiful literary works out there. The truth of the matter is, it's very hard to put this under a category of either history, because it's not full of history. There's also a lot of law. There's poetry. There's self-help. There's... Um, what else did we say here? Lit there's literature. Um, what was that? Philosophy. There's a lot. All of these different ideas. So really, how would you categorize this book called Tanakh? And the answer is, we call it Torah. What do we mean by that? We don't mean five books of Moses because we're looking at Tanakh, right? The reason why we call it Torah is because the word Torah does not mean Bible. You know what Bible means? 
Book. You know how you say book in Hebrew? Sefer. Sefer, that's the Hebrew word for book. Torah is etymologically linked to the Hebrew word hora'ah, which means instruction. Now, instruction is not limited to law. Instruction can also be morals, ethics. And indeed, every single word included in Tanakh, whether it might be a work of poetry, it may seem to us, it might be a song, it might be a story. There's a, ton, there's a lot of stories here. History. All of it is under the category of instruction. If there's a story that's recorded here in Tanakh, the reason the story is here is not so that we should know something that happened thousands of years ago to our ancestors or to one of our ancestors' enemies. Right? There's a lot of stories that have nothing to do with the Jews. They're just talking about the enemies of the Jews. There's a lesson, there's an instruction there for us. Every word, every line in Tanakh is an instruction to us. Now, it may not be obvious and apparent when you read it what exactly the instruction is. Well, for that, we have the rest of Torah. We have the oral Torah, which we're going to learn about. But the reason why we call this entire book, we call it Torah Shebikhtav, the written Torah, is because, indeed, every part of this, even Psalms, which is really stories, I mean, not sorry, songs and praises, prayers, every single word in them has an instruction to us how to live life, how to nurture good attitudes, how to nurture our relationships, etc. So, so far we have two categories of Torah. We have Torah, which is the five books of Moses, which is always going to be called Torah. One of the other words to refer to the five books of Moses in Hebrew is called Chumash. Chumash, which is basically the word Chamesh, which means five. So you say, get me a Chumash. Either it means get all five, either it means get one of the five. You have, to, you have to know what you're dealing with. You get used to it. Once you get used to the lingo, you start to understand. Chumash can mean one of the five or it can mean all of the five. But this is not a Chumash. This is a Tanakh. This encompasses all of the written Torah, Torah Shebikhtav. But I could also call this entire tome Torah because every word here is an instruction. In fact, uh, the, the, the Mishnah tells us a very fascinating thing about the Torah. You know, we're saying here there are so many options of what type of categories, what type of ideas you could learn from the Torah. History, law, self-help, philosophy, poetry. And in fact, the Mishnah states, let's look at text number two. On page eight, delve and delve into it. Delve into the Torah, delve into the Tanakh, for all is in it. See with it, grow old and worn in it. Do not budge from it, for there is nothing better. Get into things, because you're going to find everything. It's always going to be stimulating. You're bored of law, you'll find poetry. You want some philosophy, you'll find that too. And you're going to jump into the most beautiful literary works out there. It's all in the Tanakh, it's all there. But let's understand, what is the defining difference between these three categories? Why is the book of Isaiah called Prophets, and the book of Psalms is called the Writings? And why is Deuteronomy not part of Prophets? Who wrote the Torah? Who wrote the five books of Moses? Moses. And what was Moses? A prophet. 
was he different than Isaiah, different than Jeremiah, different than Samuel? So maybe the five books of Moses should also be called prophets. All right, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. These 24 books, the Tanakh, are not just called the written Torah, but they are called divine communication. When we talk about Tanakh, we say the Word of God. Now, what does that mean, the Word of God? Has anyone here heard the Word of God? Has God spoken to you? Don't answer the question. I don't want to know. That's fine. <laughs> I don't think anyone here is a prophet. And if you are, I would, I would love to speak to you afterwards. I have a few questions for God. But um, what does it mean, divine communication? Does anyone know here of a historic event where millions of people heard God speak? Yeah. Yeah. Sinai. Sinai. Very good. So when it came to Sinai, what did we hear when God came to say hello? I am your God. Do not have any other gods. Only those first two we heard directly from God, right? Those two we heard directly from God. I don't see something here in the Tanakh with just those two uh, instructions, those two laws, those two of the Ten Commandments to say, ooh, this is the word of God, we all heard it. No, it's actually included in the five books of Moses in the story of Sinai, it's all included there. <coughs> but Sinai was important because at Sinai... We heard God speak to Moses. Now this was crucial. Because when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, and he appointed him to be the leader of the Jewish people, and he said, go and take my people out of Egypt, and you're going to be my prophet, and you're going to communicate to them the Torah. You know what Moses told God? Why not me? Why not? Why not? He had a problem. He had a problem with prophecy. He said, God, I believe you're speaking to me. And the truth is, I'm sure they'll believe me as well when I'm going to show them the miracles and, and all the different signs that I'm going to show them. It's all good. At the end of the day, you know what these smart guys are going to think? Maybe <laughs> he's hacking a chinik. Maybe he didn't really speak to God. How do we know? Right? So no matter how charismatic he may be, no matter how wise he may be, no matter how wonderful he'll be to us, you never know. And God said, you're right. It's a big problem. But I have the solution. 50 days after they come out of Egypt, we're going to come to the mountain, and they are all going to hear me speak to you. Now, mind you, they're going to go out of their minds. They're not going to be able to handle it. In fact, the Torah says that after that first communication, the Jewish people ran to Moses and said, tell God to stop. We can't handle it. We're going to die. We're not going to handle it. In fact, they did die. Their souls left their bodies. They expired. God brought them back to life. They heard the second commandment. Their souls expired from their bodies. God brought them back to life. And they said, have you ever experienced death? It's not fun. They said, it's enough. It's enough. We don't want to hear God anymore. Now we know for a fact, number one, that God speaks to people. And number two, that God speaks to you. And that you're a confirmed prophet. Okay? So we've got Moses as the confirmed prophet. And from then on, the concept of prophecy has been confirmed in the Jewish, the Jewish nation, and there's rules of how to confirm who is a prophet. It wasn't just Moses. The Torah tells us that there's going to be prophets after Moses passes away. There's going to be Joshua. There's going to be other prophets as well. And there's a whole set of rules of how to determine who is a prophet. However, however, 
During the 40 years that the Jewish people were in the desert and Moses was the prophet, Moses was a very unique prophet. Let's look at text number three. God would speak to Moses. This is actually from, from the Torah. Okay, The Torah is describing how God would speak to him. God would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his fellow. Just like we're having a conversation here, that's how God would speak to Moses. It goes even deeper. Let's go to uh, the next one, um, which comes from a different part of the Torah. If, so, so actually, in this, in this story, God is speaking to Aaron and Miriam, Moshe's brother and sister. Not going to get into the story, but anyway, the point is like this. God says like this. If there be a prophet among you, I, God, will make myself known to them in a vision. I will speak to them in a dream. Not so is my servant Moses. In all my house he is trusted. Mouth to mouth I speak to him in a vision and not in riddles. He gazes at the image of God. Now I know there's a lot embedded over here. I'm not going to get into all the details of all of this. However, there's a few things I want to extract from here. Number one, we see that Moses, when God would speak to him, it was like speaking to a friend. Why is that significant? Because, now I don't, I don't have the text for that here in the book, but the reason for that is because Maimonides tells us, and this is actually alluded to throughout the books of the prophets, that when a prophet, aside from Moses, would receive prophecy from God, they would go into a trance. A, a person watching them would think that they're having like, a, like an episode. Like literally, they would, they would fall on the floor and they were not communicating with the rest of the people. It was, it was a trance. Uh, sometimes they would do wild things while they were having it because they were essentially having a transcendent experience which their body couldn't handle. Not only that, the prophet did not receive direct, clear communication from God. As God says himself, to other prophets I speak in riddles. To other prophets they have some type of vision that they need to interpret properly. But with Moses, number one, he can handle it without a problem and I speak to him direct and it's direct, direct communication. All right, so the five books of Moses were communicated to Moses directly from God and Moses received it very easily, received it and transcribed every single word. So every word was spoken to Moses. Here's another distinction between the five books of Moses and the other prophets. The five books of Moses is the only written Torah that contains within it law, mitzvahs. All the mitzvahs that we have, all the 613 mitzvahs, are recorded only in the five books of Moses. In other words, the only one that was able to communicate to us mitzvah, law, through prophecy, was Moses. So then what are the prophets all for? We'll get to that soon. But mitzvah, 613 mitzvah that, that all Jews have everywhere and all the time are only communicated to us and recorded in the five books of Moses. <clears throat> Let's go to text number four. 48 prophets and seven prophetesses. There were women prophets. Anyone know a name of a women prophet? Deborah. Deborah, Deborah. Any other ones? Esther. Esther. 
was a prophetess. Chana, the mother of Samuel, she was a prophetess. Chulda, there are other prophetesses that, that are recorded in, uh, in the books. Anyway, so 48 prophets and seven prophetesses prophesied to the people of Israel, and they neither subtracted from nor added to what is written in the Torah. If a prophet showed up and said, God came to me saying, that from now on, you don't need to put on tefillin, guess what we would say to such a prophet? Get a life. <laughs> You're obviously not a prophet. It's just the rule. The prophet can't come and say, that instead of 613, there's only 612, right? If a prophet would come and say, hey guys, I've got another mitzvah for you. God came to me, and he told me that from now on, in the middle of the winter, we have to wake up in the middle of the night and take a, a big stick, a big wooden stick, light it on fire, and dance in a circle. The 614th mitzvah. You know what we'll tell them? Sounds exciting, interesting, but it's no mitzvah. Sorry. It's not one of the 613 mitzvot. So what's the purpose of the prophets? The whole purpose of, a purpose of the prophets is to encourage us to keep the Torah. Oh, so here's a very interesting thing. So the Jewish people received the Torah at Sinai. 40 years, Moses writes down the Torah, gives them all the instructions for life, and then they go into the land. Now, those 40 years that they were in the desert, it was like being in summer camp, right? They didn't have to work. They didn't have to prepare their food. Everything was provided to them, and all they were doing was basically learning Torah and learning how to live Jewishly. But now they go into the land of Israel, and now everyone has their own, their own real estate, their own farms, their own fields. They have to deal with it. Life gets busy. Stuff happens. And unfortunately, people lose sight and lose focus. And so therefore, God was sending prophets to them to encourage them to keep the Torah, to keep the mitzvot. Now, I want to point something out here. The Talmud says that there were 48 prophets, seven prophetesses that prophesied to Israel. The fact of the matter is that during the era of prophecy, which was during the entire time from when the Jewish people came into the land of Israel until the destruction of the first holy temple, there were hundreds of thousands of prophets. Prophecy was like a thing that a lot of people experienced. It was a very fascinating concept. And we have many stories in the prophets which allude to that. It speaks about hundreds of prophets saying prophecy here, and 50 prophets in this cave, and 50 prophets in that cave. So why does the Talmud say only 48 prophets? Because even though there were hundreds of thousands of prophets, prophecy is not limited to communication to the Jewish people. Prophecy could be a private affair, a person having a prophetic experience. And that prophetic experience, whatever message, or whatever vision that prophet had, was not relevant to the Jewish people and therefore was not recorded. So what the Talmud is telling us is that during that era, there were only 48 prophets that said prophecy that was relevant to every single Jew in every single generation. Which also gives us a better understanding of this category called prophets. In the category called prophets, in these books, these eight books or uh, 12 plus 7 is about 19, in these 19 books, it does not contain all of the prophecy that was ever communicated to all the prophets that ever were. And it's not meant to. These 19 books in the prophets are only meant to be prophecy that are Torah, that are instruction, that are relevant to every Jew in every time and in every place. That's Nevi'im. 
And what is the, 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 the fundamental difference between what is recorded in Nevi'im and what is recorded in the five books of Moses? The way it was communicated to that human being. The five books of Moses were communicated to Moses like man to man, you know, face to face. Those exact words were told to Moses and he wrote down those exact words. When it came to the prophets, the way it was communicated to them was not face to face. It wasn't a fun conversation. It wasn't an easygoing conversation. They fell into a trance. They had a vision which had to be understood. However, everything that's there is the word of God. Just it was communicated in a bit of a more obscure fashion, but everything there is still the word of God. <clears throat> then, let's go to um, the writings. What are the writings? So in the writings we have Psalms, we have the book of Ruth, we have Job, Ecclesiastes, all of these books. Many of these books were written, most of them, I think all of them, were written by prophets. But they weren't written through prophecy. They were written through what is called Ruach HaKodesh, the Divine Spirit. Now let's see how Maimonides explains and describes what Ruach HaKodesh is and how that differs from prophecy. Uh, text number 5, we're on page 11. The person feels as if something has come upon them and as if they have received a new power that drives them to speak. They speak words of wisdom or compose hymns or exhort their fellows with useful advice or discourse on matters of communal leadership or theology. All this while they are awake and in the full possession of their senses. Such a person is said to speak by Ruach HaKodesh. How do we know this person is not speaking through prophecy? He's awake. He's... Oh, so it's not just regular intuition. We're talking here about a person who's having some type of divine uh, inspiration. All of us have intuition, but that's not called Ruach HaKodesh. That's not called divine inspiration. It's, it's a certain, by the way, not any old, you know, Tom, Dick, and Harry can come and say, I'm speaking with Ruach HaKodesh. These people were, were confirmed, I mean, for example, a prophet, yeah? A prophet is someone, or a prophetess, is someone that it makes sense that they would have all of a sudden this divine, divine intuition, divine inspiration, and they start to speak. Now, are they translating a vision that they're seeing from God? No. Because if they were, they would have been in a trance. Their bodies can't handle that type of communication. So are they speaking words that they heard directly from God? Are they speaking words which are extracted from a vision that they saw from God? No. But the words that they're speaking are driven by a divine inspiration. That's called Ruach HaKodesh. And the, my mind continues. It was through this kind of divine inspiration that David composed the Psalms and Solomon composed the books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. Also Daniel, Job, Chronicles, and the rest of the writings were written in this manner. If you ever read the book of Job, it's actually a conversation between Job and his friends. Ruach HaKod, prophecy? I mean, <laughs> they weren't prophets, but the entire conversation was motivated by a certain divine inspiration. In fact, uh, the Talmud tells us that, by the way, there's, there's a whole conversation of who exactly Job was, if he even existed. 
There is, there is an opinion in the Talmud that says actually the story of Job never happened. It's, it's actually a, a metaphor. But that's fine. Was Job Jewish or not? Even if you want to say that he was, his three friends definitely were not Jewish, right? And the Talmud says that there were non-Jewish prophets that prophesied. Who is the most famous non-Jewish prophet that said prophecy? Bilaam. Bilaam was a rotten apple. He was a real lowlife. But for some reason, he was a prophet. He was a real confirmed prophet. And in fact, he is the first prophet to say prophecy that Mashiach will come. And it's recorded in the Torah. Anyway. Obviously, how did Moses know about it? God communicated to Moses what, what Bilaam said. Hey, that's a conversation for another time. So, what is the fundamental difference between Torah, prophets, and writings? There are three different kinds of divine communication. Torah is direct communication face-to-face -face with Moses. Prophets is communication, but it's not in a way of face-to-face. -face. It's more of a vision. The body can't handle it. They fall into a trance and they're actually extracting the words from a vision that they had or a metaphor, a riddle. And then the third one, the writings are essentially words that they were driven to speak or to write while they were under the influence of a divine inspiration. But again, all of these are called Torah, instruction, and all of these are contained in the concept called written Torah. Now, so... We started off and said, okay, so now we have the written Torah. So, so now, what's all the rest? The Mishnah, the Talmud, and all of that. So it's the oral Torah. What do I mean by the oral Torah? You know, you might think, if I have the written Torah, that's all I need. So now, now I can live as a Jew. I don't, I don't need to, I, I'd rather have the record of the divine communication. What do I need the oral Torah for? So let's go to text number six. Scripture which is this. This is called scripture, okay? This is, you know, the, the ketav, the, the written, the written Torah. So scripture, Mishnah, Talmud, the Agadah, even what a proficient student is destined to innovate were already said to Moses at Sinai. Whoa. <laughs> but I, I thought there was only five books that were said to Moses. Not so simple. If you look at the five books of Moses, you know, if, I, if you're stuck on an island and you can have only one book, which book should you ask for in order to know how to live Jewishly? What was that? You say a chumash, huh? Okay. Here's the problem. There's a mitzvah to wear tefillin, Right? Biden it on your arm and between your eyes. If you have a chumash and you're going to read about the mitzvah of tefillin in the chumash, you're not going to know what to do. <laughs> you shall bind it as a sign upon your hand and you shall bind, right, place them as a reminder between your eyes. What are you talking about? Oh, so, uh, even the Talmud is difficult. So Ed said it, Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law. And we'll talk about what that is in a different lesson. One second. So what, what happened over here? Where, where, did that all, where did all that information come from? When Moses was on Mount Sinai... What was that? What? Right. Right. So now where did they come from? Did Moses receive all those instructions? And if he did, why didn't he write it down? Why didn't he write down all these instructions? Why did he give us five books that actually aren't very helpful? They're nice. 
They're beautiful, but they're not very helpful if you want to live Jewishly. If you open up five books of Moses, you don't know how to keep Shabbos. You don't know how to make matzah. You, you don't know any of these things. Almost nothing in Judaism could be understood and actually acted upon based on the information that you'll find in the five books of Moses. So one second. Did, did the people in Moses' generation not know how to live Jewishly? Well, what's going on? So here's the deal. When Moses was on the mountain, when he was receiving divine communication from God, and God tells him, all right, tefillin, you shall bind them as a sign upon your hand, and you shall write, you know, put, place them as a reminder between your eyes. Moses says, huh? <laughs> so I said, okay. These are the words you're going to write in the Torah. And now I'm going to tell you what it means, how to understand those words, etc. The same thing was true about Shabbos. God said, you should not do any work. What's the first question Moses asked? What's work? Define work, right? Flipping a light switch, how is that work? And then schlepping a bookcase to the other side of the room, that's not work. What's going on over here, right? Or giving a sermon for a half hour in the synagogue, that's not work. Right? I work on Shabbos, sometimes. Um, so how do you define work? And God says, all right, don't worry about it. These are the words you're going to write in the book. And I'm going to tell you what that all means. There are 39 malachot, 39 types of work, and all of their offshoots, etc. And the same thing with all the 613 mitzvot. In fact, the Torah, the written Torah, the five books of Moses, nowhere does it say over there that there are 613 mitzvot. They're not counted out in bullet points. Mitzvah number one, number two, number three. Not at all. In fact, even the Ten Commandments, it's not very clear what are the ten in, in the book. In the actual text. It's not clear where does one begin, where does it end. It's not, it's not very clear. Huh? They run together, right? So how do we know that they're 10? The Torah says that they're 10. But the Torah doesn't say that they're 613. God told Moses they're 613. And God gave a whole huge amount of information that Moses had to absorb and give over to the Jewish people. And all of that was meant to be communicated orally. So the Jewish people, when they were in the desert, they knew how to put on tefillin. And they knew how to keep Shabbos. And they knew how to keep the holidays. They knew how to set up the calendar. By the way, the calendar is a very fascinating thing. It's like the foundation of Judaism. And if you look at the Chumash to figure out how to set up a Jewish calendar, you're blind. You have no idea what to do. None at all. And all of that was communicated to Moses, and he received all that information, and he communicated it. Now, lest you say, oh, one second. <laughs> How do we know there's no broken telephone? By the way, when Moses communicated it, he communicated it to millions of people. All of the Jewish people came and learned from Moses. So everyone was able to correct each other if there was any, anything missing. And that, what, that oral Torah was preserved throughout the generations. Now, it might seem that written Torah and oral Torah could exist independently. So there's this great story about Hillel. You know, Hillel, famous Hillel. So there was, there was a Gentile that wanted to convert to Judaism. He comes to Shammai, and he tells him, I'd like to convert to Judaism. He says, okay, come and learn. He says, but before I do so, I'd like to understand, how many Torahs do you have? You've got two Torahs. We have the written Torah, and we have the oral Torah. In the days of Shammai, there was no oral Torah books. It was only this. The days of Shammai, this is the only thing that was written book, written scroll, manuscript, scripture. And the rest he said, then there's oral Torah, the tradition. So the Gentiles said, look, 
I'd like to convert to Judaism, but I can only be expected to accept the written Torah, the record. <coughs> I'm not ready to accept the oral Torah. So Shammai said, I'm sorry, I don't have such a conversion package. <laughs> Hasta la vista. All right, but he really wanted to convert to Judaism, so he goes to Hillel. Hillel, he comes and he asks him the same question. And Hillel answered, two Torahs, written Torah, oral Torah. So the guy says, yeah, I, I, I figured you would say that. Shammai said the same thing. But I'd like to convert with only the written Torah, not the oral Torah. So Hillel says, all right, I'll make a special deal for you. Just written Torah, no oral Torah. No problem. No problem. But you want to know how to read the written Torah, right? That's, that's how you're going to convert to Judaism. Let's start to read. We have to learn how to read Hebrew. All right? So he takes out a tablet, a stone. Not, a, not the tablet you're using over there. So he takes out a stone, and on it is written, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalit. So he teaches it to him, these four letters. He says, go home, do your homework, come back. He comes back the next day, he says, let's do a little review. What's this? He points to the Aleph. Hillel points to the Aleph, and the guy says, Aleph. So Hillel looks at him, he says, that's not an Aleph. That's a tough. He says, Rabbi, that's an Aleph. So, all right, put that on the side. What's the next one? What, what is that letter? That's a bet. Nah, it's not a bet. That's a shin, my friend. Rabbi, that's no shin, that's a bet. Finally, the rabbi says, who told you that's a bet? Me. You just trusted me that that's a bet. So the Gentile understood. <laughs> is that the written Torah is essentially inaccessible. If you take out a Torah scroll and you've never looked in a chumash, in a printed Torah, and you try to read the Torah scroll, you can't make heads or tails of it. Because in the written record that Moses wrote, there's letters, there's words, there's paragraphs, but that's it. There's no vowels, there's no cantillation marks, there's no uh, you know, periods, commas, none of that. In fact, there are words that if you wouldn't know better, you would mistranslate them, you would misread them, they would mean they would mean many different things. When Moses gave the written record to the Jewish people, they weren't just receiving a book. Okay, we've got the book, we can go to sleep. They had to know how to read that book. They had to know not only how to translate the words, they had to know what does it all mean. And that is oral Torah. For 1,500 years, this oral Torah was, was oral. They were allowed to write notes but there was never an official book. Maimonides writes that the sages would write notes for themselves of different laws, different ideas, different interpretations that they received, but all of it essentially was received from Moses. There is a lot that Moses gave us. For example, Moses gave us um, 13 principles of how to understand the Torah. That's all communicated from Moses. So this whole idea of oral law and written law, they're not really divorced from each other because actually the book that I'm holding right now is actually 50% oral Torah. What do I mean by that? In fact, the one I'm holding now is also an English translation. So really it's 75% oral Torah. If I would just have a scroll with words and paragraphs, then that would be 100% written Torah. But this has got vowels, it's got, uh, you know, it has periods and commas. There's so much here that for thousands of, that for 1,500 years was only communicated orally.
Why is that? It's a good question. But this is something that we have to understand. That when we talk about Torah, it's not exclusively the five books of Moses, and not exclusively the written Torah. Torah, which means instruction, includes also the oral Torah. But the book that we are reading now, that we are concentrating on now, is the written Torah, which is the 24 books of the Tanakh. <coughs> now, when it comes to... Um, I'm, I'm trying, there's so much in this course. I'm trying to kind of keep this to an hour and 15 minutes and we should, uh, we should be able to move on. Um, let's go to figure 1.5, Okay. Uh, on the left side, it's supposed to be an illustration of uh, DNA. And on the right, you have the person. Huh? What did I say? Oh, figure, I, just, I didn't say a page. My apologies. <laughs> I'm so excited about this. <laughs> All right. Ah, you're listening. There you go. Page 18. So, we all see the person, right? The problem is, we see the body. We don't know much about the body. We know when the body is hungry, we know when the body is not feeling well, we know when the body is tired, etc. But if you want to uh, fix the body, what do you need? You need to go to a doctor. What does the doctor know? Okay. How does the doctor know his information? I'm the scientist, right? What did the scientist discover? The scientist discovered that everybody has a special and unique code. If you can crack the code, if you can understand the code, you're going to find out so many things about this body. Very fascinating concept here. So you have... So, so what is the person? Is the person DNA or is the person the body? The answer is he's both. Both of them are the person. But here's the deal. Um, here's the deal. This book, the Tanakh is the code to Torah. What do I mean by that? Torah is essentially how to live a Jewish life. In order to live a Jewish life, you need to have Jewish law. You have to know how to live Jewishly, how to keep the mitzvot. You need to have Jewish philosophy. You need to have Jewish ethics. You need to have the esoteric area of Judaism. You need to have all of these things because a person is not just about behavior. A person is about a, a mentality uh, a person is about attitude a person is about inspiration there's so much that goes into the makeup of the person that it's not fair to go and say you know what Torah is for me just a rule book of how to live life there's so much more to Torah and that's why when God gave us the Torah he gave us a written document and then he gave us the oral Torah what does that mean? In the written document, which is a divine communication, he embedded within every single letter and word and paragraph and, and the shape of the letters, etc., everything that you will ever need to know about Jewish life. Jewish law, it's in there. Jewish poetry, it's in there. Inspiration, ethics, all of that, everything will be found within this genetic code. But at its core, it's a code. And if you don't know how to read the code, you're stuck. 
So for that we need to have the oral, the oral Torah. But this remains the written Torah, and you'll find very fascinatingly that in the same verse of the Torah, you can extract from it law, inspiration, mysticism, you can extract morals, ethics, you can extract so much. Why? Because this is how God wanted it to be written, and this is God's code to creation, God's code to life. Which leads us to another very fascinating concept about the Torah. Um, I'm, I'm skipping around over here a bit, but uh, bear with me. <clears throat> Let's go to text 11. But before that, I'd like to say the following introduction. What was that? Page 21, yes, page 21. Another fundamental difference between written Torah and oral Torah is the following. When it comes to written Torah, the most important thing is the recorded word. Gotta get the words right. That's one of the reasons why that which was given in record, you cannot say by heart. Because if you're going to say verses by heart, you're going to say it orally and get it wrong, you're messing around with the code. You can't do that. So when it comes to written Torah, when it comes to Tanakh, the words are most important. When it comes to the oral Torah, Talmud, Mishnah, Maimonides, Code of Jewish Law, etc., the most important thing is content. Now what's the practical difference? Here's the practical difference. Let's go to text 11. This is a quote from the Rebbe. With the written Torah, a person says the blessing on the Torah when they read it, even if they don't understand what they are saying. Fascinating. If you know how to read Hebrew, and you're reading words from the Torah, and you have no idea what you're saying, <clears throat> you are still legitimately engaged in Torah study. You don't understand anything, <clears throat> but you're saying the words. And because you're saying the words, so you got to say a blessing. Because when it comes to written, written Torah, it's all about the words. Now, if you could understand it, that's better, obviously. You know, you're supposed to understand what you're saying. But because it's all about the words, it makes no difference if you understand what the words are. You are reciting the divine code. But, let's continue here. With the oral Torah, however, a person cannot say the blessing unless they understand what they are saying. For as regards the oral Torah, learning entails human understanding. If you open up a book of Mishnah, and you start to recite the words of Mishnah in Hebrew, and you don't understand what you're saying, you cannot make the blessing on Torah. But if you read that same Mishnah in English, oh, you better make a blessing before you read it in English. Why? Because you are absorbing the content of the oral Torah. You're absorbing that content. So, when it comes, so another difference here is that in the written Torah, it's all about the words. And in the oral Torah, it's all about the content, which brings us to another fascinating thing, and that is that the words of the written Torah have a tremendous amount of divinity and holiness. These are holy words. And therefore, there's tremendous value in reciting these words, even if you don't understand them, because they are the divine words. God wanted them to be written in this very specific way, 
And not in a different way, because these are the code to creation, the code to life, the code to everything we need to know forever. Not only that, as we mentioned earlier, everything that you're ever going to read that comes under under the category of Torah, whether it's law, whether it's mysticism, whether it's ethics, morals, philosophy, whatever it might be, all of it is embedded within these words. It's all there. It's all embedded within it. Text number, so who's extracting it? We are. Throughout the generations, in every generation, more Torah is being revealed, but it's all being revealed from the words when we extract it according to the rules that were given to us by Moses. Let's go to text number 12. Um, in the blessing recited before studying Torah, we say, uh, 12 is on page 23. Sorry about that again. Whew. In the blessing recited before studying Torah, we say, Blessed are you, God, who gives the Torah. Gives, not gave. When was the Torah given? 3,334 years ago. So why, are we, why in the blessing do we say, Torah, the one who gives us the Torah, in the present tense? In truth, God has already given us the Torah at Mount Sinai. Yet, He still gives the Torah perpetually. This matter requires some elaboration. The Torah says, These words God spoke to your entire assembly at the mountain, a great, va- a great voice that did not cease. Rashi explains the, the meaning of the words did not cease in accordance with the translation of, by Unculus, very fascinating person. Um, so what is it? It did not stop, for it is a powerful voice that endures forever. So that's one interpretation for these words. Rashi also offers a second interpretation of the words, velo yasaf, it did not anymore. It stopped. One interpretation is, it didn't stop. The other interpretation is that it stopped, that God did not speak, did not again speak so openly and publicly as he did at Sinai. So, so how do we balance these two translations? There is a profound significance in these two interpretations as they are simultaneously true. The divine voice spoke the Torah at Sinai and did not anymore, as all the subsequent laws and edicts instituted by the sages throughout the generations were not explicitly commanded by God at the time. It's never communicated through prophecy, as we said, if a prophet comes and said, God told me there's an extra mitzvah. God told me, take away this mitzvah. Hey, you're, you're, out of, you're out of your lane, right? At the same time, it did not cease. For everything was included in potential form within that voice. It was all embedded in that code. It is only that for everything there is a time and season. And the time had not yet come for that potential to emerge into actuality. As that depends on the initiative of those down here below, in accordance with their nature and their abilities, and in accordance with the qualities of the souls of, every generation, of each generation. The sages of each generation were then roused to actualize from that potential in accordance with the time and season. Thus... The sages did not invent anything from their own minds, God forbid, but rather actualized the divine intent. 
So again, everything that is being revealed from the Torah, extrapolated from Torah, expounded from Torah, it's all embedded in there, it's all there. The voice didn't speak again, it didn't need to because it's all embedded, but it didn't cease because it's just continuously being mined for more and more information and inspiration. Um, what I'd like to do is, I'd like to point out some, uh, ver we'll do this very quickly, we have a few minutes. I'd like to point out some verses, and we'll see how these voice verses are very lacking when it comes to the actual knowing how to behave. And we'll see that there's the Torah, Shabbat, the written Torah, and then there's the oral Torah. So text number 13. Remember the Shabbat day to sanctify it. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, and on the seventh day is a rest day unto God. What does that mean? How do you define work, right? The definition of work was actually communicated to Moses. He was given the 39 avot malachot, main definitions of work, and he communicated it to his generation and them to their generations. The first time that we have an actual record of the 39 malachot is in the Mishnah, which was only recorded in writing 1,500 years later. However, however, you're going to find that the sages throughout the generations are always going to try to see how all of these laws that we always knew about, they're always going to find hidden messages in the Torah that allude to these 39 malachot. So it's not that the Mishnah came and said, oh, we have a new divine communication from God that there's 39 specific ways of work that are prohibited on Shabbos. No, this was given through Moses. And we all knew about it and that's how we kept Shabbos. Over the generations, the whole journey of Torah study was to see how can we take the information we already know and see how can we extract it from the words. Let's take another idea, philosophy. Free choice. Where do we know that we have free choice? Text number 15 from Deuteronomy on page 25. See, I have set before you this day life and good and death and evil. Life and death I have set before you, blessing and curse, and you shall choose life. What does this mean? A person has life in one hand, death in the other hand, choose the life so that you live. What's happening here? So that's written Torah. But there's actually a very important message that's embedded in these words. And we know what they mean thanks to Maimonides. Text number 16 on page 26. Freedom of choice has been granted to every person. If a person wants to turn to the path of goodness and be righteous, the choice is theirs. And if a person wants to turn to the path of evil and be wicked, the choice is theirs. Oh, this is what it means that I've given you good and evil. This truth is a fundamental principle and a pillar of the Torah and its commandments. As it is written, see I have set before you this day life and good and death and evil. Were God to decree that a person should be righteous or wicked, or if there were to exist something in the very essence of a person's nature that would compel them toward a particular path, a particular conviction, a particular character trait, or a particular deed, how could God command us through the prophets, do this, do not do this? I was born to do this. How can you tell me not to do it? What place would the entire Torah have? And by what measure of justice would God punish the wicked and reward the righteous? This is a very fascinating concept which we would not really extrapolate from the actual words unless we had the tools we needed in order to understand it 
and appreciate it. Um, so, just to kind of finalize, our first, our first step in understanding the Jewish library is to realize that first and foremost, we have the Torah. The Torah is a very ambiguous type of word, but actually the Torah means something very specific. The Torah can mean the five books of Moses, which is the Torah scroll. The Torah can mean the written Torah, which is comprised of Torah, prophets, and the writings, which the difference between them is the type of divine communication, the way it was communicated to people. And then the other definition of Torah also includes the oral Torah, which is the tradition which allows us to access that which is being communicated to us in the written Torah. And one of the fundamental differences between them is that in the written Torah, the words are most important and therefore they're holy. And if you're able to read Hebrew and you're able to read the words, do so, even if you don't understand every word. Um, if you're able to read Tehillim in the Hebrew, that's valuable, that's important. When it comes to the oral Torah, over there, understanding is most important. And therefore, rather than reading a Mishnah in Hebrew, better read a Mishnah in English, because that's how you're actually learning and understanding Torah. But when it comes to this book, reading it in Hebrew is very powerful and very important. Thank you all for joining. If any questions anyone would like to ask before we go offline? Anyone from, from Zoom or from in person? I see, I'm just getting some clapping. All righty, so I guess everything was clear. Thank you, Anna. Recording stopped. All righty, great. Thank you all for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you. Thank you. Yeah, next week, same time, same place.